Boucherie, the restaurant, I think is, is hopefully it's unique. It's something that I've spent a lot of time on and I've always kind of described it as fine dining for the people from the beginning. I think that we have the ability to make something wonderful without having to charge an arm and a leg for it. And part of the way that we do that is by really dedicating ourselves to the craft. You know, in our current climate, a lot of times food costs a lot more, but a lot of that food that costs a lot more is food that's been somewhat prepared, right? So whole ingredients tend to cost similar. I mean, there's still inflation, but it's not the same because there's not as much labor involved from other people. So for me, I like the idea of of taking a whole thing, and figuring out what to do with every single bit of it and try not to have any waste and really focus in on um, technique. Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Hello and welcome to Flavors Unknown podcast. This week, my guest is Chef Nathaniel Zimet from Boucherie and Bure in New Orleans. I recently met Chef Zimet at a cocktail party in New Orleans, and we had such a great conversation about the current state of the industry, his restaurants in New Orleans, and his food program for school that I invited him to talk about all of this on the podcast. I am your host, Emmanuel Laroche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country to talk about their successes and challenges and how their background influences their creative process. You can follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and on our website, flavorsunknown.com. I suggest that you subscribe to our newsletter. And you will be able to download a recipe booklet put together from recipes shared by some of the chefs who are featured on my upcoming book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. It will be available on November 8th, wherever you buy books online. On the next episode, I will talk to you about the virtual book launch event that I will host on Instagram Live on Monday, November 14th. So don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Flavors Unknown. But more about the book event at a later time. Now let's welcome Chef Nathaniel Simet to the show. Hi, Chef. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thank you. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to ask you, are you originally from, from New Orleans? I forgot to ask you when I saw you last week. I'm originally from North Carolina. I, I moved to New Orleans the year before Katrina, so 2004. Oh, okay. So North Carolina. So what food and smell reminds you of, of your childhood? I think I would, I would probably be, be hanged if I didn't say pork. So cooking whole pigs really kinds of gets me nostalgic okay and how so i guess it was at home so how was your your parents or your family cooking pork well actually that's interesting my where i'm from is hillsborough north carolina which we have a hillsborough hog day and so the whole town which is all of about 15 people get together and and there's a lot of a lot of whole hog barbecue that goes on my family i was raised i would say jewish so not quite as much pork cooked cooked in the house. When did the, the passion for cooking start? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've really only worked in restaurants predominantly since six, I'm 16. And I really enjoyed just kind of the, the, the always something going on, the, the, the busyness of it. Maybe that, you know, that whole idle hands that might kind of play well into my brain in that I don't do well sitting idly. But I, you know, I never really cooked for the first probably three years of, of working in restaurants. I was, 
I, I waited tables and was predominantly front of the house. And the cooking aspect is interesting because my, my mother is a, an incredible cook. And so I, I never really cooked at home because in my very, uh, I guess, technical brain, I think, why would I cook when I'm not the best cook in the house? <laughs> you know, sure. yeah. even, even one mother's day, I remember going for, I was going to, my mom loves shrimp. And so I went and I bought a whole bunch of shrimp and I was like, mom, here's the deal. I'll peel them. <laughs> I'll clean them up for you, but you're going to cook them because you're going to cook them better than me. <laughs> so <laughs> it was, funny. it took a while. I would say I was about three and a half years into a communications degree at, at university. I, w- I went to Wake Forest and I realized, well, what am I doing and, and how is this going to help me to own a restaurant? Because for some reason, I always wanted to own restaurants my whole life. Oh, okay. And, you had that in uh, your mind. Okay. I did. I did. <laughs> and so my, do you know where it's coming from? No clue. No clue. Nobody no clue. in my family has ever done anything like this. This is very far removed from okay. what my normal was as a uh, growing up and going through the, the thoughts and, and trying to determine what, what, you know, what a communications degree would do to get me into that position. I kind of have a little bit of a control issue, I would say, <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm being honest. And I realized or I, I considered that the best way to be in control of a restaurant would be to become the chef. So I said, well, I need to go to culinary school to learn how to do this properly if this is what I really want to do with my life. And so I researched some some schools. And, and as I said, I was already in university. So a lot of the culinary schools in the States are, are associate's degree programs. So I, I hate to say remedial math and, and English courses, but but not necessarily, you know, not necessarily the focus of the school. And, and I've already taken all of those classes. So I, I started to to look abroad and Le Cordon Bleu popped up. And so I started to research the programs and they are certification programs more so than associate's degrees. So they don't have to worry as much about, I guess, math and English classes and things like that. So I started to research them. They had, this was just before they started to have Le Cordon Bleu in, in, in America. And I, I applied to Le Cordon Bleu in London and I was accepted in. And I began that process. And then about two thirds of the way through, one of the classes was canceled. And so I had to go back to the States because I was too poor to live in London. And as I was leaving, I was talking to some of my chefs and I said, you know, listen, what do I do? You know, I have to go back to the States sure. for you a bit to finish. and I need to, to finish. Where would you recommend? And they said, they were all pretty resoundingly were like, well, we're in London. So we have to say London. Wink, wink. I recommend Sydney, Australia. So, wow. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. So a year later, I, I found myself living in, in Australia to finish my program. So how about that experience both in, in London and Australia from you coming from North Carolina? It was awesome. You know, I've, I've been pretty lucky in, in my life that my parents are very well educated and, and well traveled as well. So I've been pretty lucky, as I said, in, inside of being able to travel a lot. And I, I don't think I looked at this as like this crazy adventure as much as I looked at this as this is what I'm going to be doing. And so it seemed like a natural progression. And in England, it was awesome. It was, I really enjoyed my time there. It was a little intense in that just I was so poor and it was so obvious <laughs> because London's such an expensive city. And then in Sydney, it was awesome. I mean, mm-hmm, what a mm-hmm. wonderful place. How long did you place. stay in Sydney? I was there for six months. Six months. Do you have any uh, like memories of like food, something that intrigued you and in Australia, in Sydney? You know, strangely... <laughs> One of the things that is, I guess, stood out the most, I would go and every week we would shop. I, my girlfriend had, at the time was, was living with me in Australia. And every week we would go to Chinatown and shop for the week. But then also I really relied pretty heavily on the food that, you know, the way the Cordon Bleu is structured is you, it's instructor. You are in an instructor in a, a teaching kitchen with mirrors and, and you were taught, you were taught a, a menu, and then you were immediately sent into the kitchen to recreate that menu. So there was a lot of cooking involved, a lot of hands-on. And as such, there was a lot of food. So I got to really kind of take a lot of food home with me and helped my struggling student days. But in Australia, turkey is like the most expensive meat that there is because there's just none that live there. There's none that like are, are naturally, that's not their natural habitat. And so I just remember thinking, turkey, how come... Turkey, which is one of the cheaper meats in America, 
how come this stuff is like $35 a pound? This doesn't make any sense. But, you know, overall, I, I would say the Asian food, the, that influence, of course, is massive there and, and truly inspiring to me. You know, that, that Asian, Asian cuisine, I, I just have such a love for the, the intense, the intense flavors. There's a lot of curries as well, like Indian style curries, really just a lot of, I don't know, you know, I, again, I love going to Chinatowns and those types of areas. That's for me, walk in the streets is what I want to do every day is just look around when I'm in a foreign city and explore mm-hmm. and explore. Yeah. So after when you, you came back, then who was, who has been your most influential mentors? I would definitively say that my, my mentor is Shane Ingram, uh, mm-hmm. Four Square Restaurant in Durham, North yeah. Carolina. He's an influential, well, he, he was, I call it, El Jefe was, was the man. I mean, he is really very impressive. So when I first, I was even, I was, I was not fully, <laughs> very naive, let me say. <laughs> I believe that I had secured a job at the Farrington House, which was the, you know, four star, four diamond, suit, Relais, Chateau, degustation only restaurant. It was a fabulous place in Pittsburgh, which is kind of rural Chapel Hill, essentially. And I worked there for probably about six months. The the kitchen, everybody was British in the whole kitchen. There was one French person and one American. And, you know, this kind of behavior, I guess, doesn't fly anymore in, in our world. But I was cursed at every single second. For being yeah. the slowest person. I heard a lot about those. <laughs> that was, yes. It was a lot, you know. And, and honestly, I'm not unhappy about it. You know, I feel like I, I learned I was forced to change the cadence of, of my work. It was priceless. The issue that I had was I was hired and this was a very long time ago. So I was hired at, I think, 950 an hour and ecstatic to get the job. Don't get me wrong. And, and I certainly wouldn't change my trajectory. And I was told after three months, I would get a raise. So three months goes on, it goes by. I have been promoted two different times up the, up the brigade. And so I, I take the chef and the sous chef into the office and I say, chef, you know, it's time. In three months, it's time to talk about the raise. And they said, you are an idiot. Do you really think you're lucky we pay you? You're a worthless sack of shit. And they just lit into me. And I said, well, I guess I have to give you my notice. And they said to me, I was told, well, think about it like this. You could stop right now and go get a job and run an Applebee's and make $60,000 a year. And that's the last, that's the last stop of your professional career. Or you can do this and you can learn and then you know, it's not about money. Don't think about it as, as, as something, this is not the time in your career. You know, if you were in England or in Europe, you would be apprenticing for so many more years than you do. We have to pay you here, but we shouldn't even be paying you. And I was like, that's fair. I went about a month, month or two. And I remember it was a, a very, very traditional style kitchen. So I was on hot apps and I, Play, you know, I, I, I cook all of the food. I pass pans up to chef and chef at the pass, then plates. And I had started to plate with him and he had let me, I mean, like not started to, like he actually let me plate. And at the end of the service, he patted me on the back and he said, you just did a great job, Nathaniel. And I said, thank you, chef. A few minutes later, pats me on the back again. Really impressed today, Nathaniel. Yes, chef. Third time he pats me on the back, I say, chef, can we go in your office? and he goes of course and we go into his office i said now about that raise and he said that's just not going to happen and i said well i respect that consider this my notice how much notice would you like and they said let's take a year (laughs) and i said okay so four weeks it is you know it is it is a different you know scene today for sure very much so right and so i i had to put in my notice just for my own integrity i felt and i hadn't didn't have a job didn't have a plan and I, in fact, I was considering going into wine purchasing for a, a grocery store. And then I found Foursquare. And I remember immediately just being overwhelmed and enthralled. Like he was super fine dining again, four star, four diamond. The menu changed 100% every single month. And this is not like what we talk about where, oh, we changed the menu. So today, our American Red Snapper is going to be served with winter so, squash. For, for the people listening, so where, where, is it located, where was it located? Oh, yes. Foursquare Restaurant was open for about 18 years. He closed a few years ago in Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, and okay. Truly a, 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 an impressive And that's the man. one with Shane Ingram. Yes, yes indeed, with Chef mm-hmm. Shane Ingram. 
and he is currently at the Durham Hotel, the big, the big hotel. And I, I spoke to him a couple weeks ago, and he seems to be doing great. But he just yeah. truly, he just he taught me how to so, taste. So honestly. what? Yeah, exactly. What did you learn? You know, with him. He he taught me how to taste. We would have these new menu meetings, and again, it's every month. And so the whole kitchen, we'd sit down. He'd have an outline, and it was just the most brief, bare bones outline. And he would he would say, "Okay, so we're going to do this." Tell me what, how would you make this? And then we would talk and we'd talk for a couple hours and then we would get into the kitchen and do it, man. And, you know, with something like this, you don't have the luxury of, of failing, you know, like you don't, at a type of restaurant like this, you don't put out a bad plate of food, but it gets easier. So that first couple of weeks were just difficult. You know, you just really had to work your butt off to get the product that you wanted and that you would have been proud of to put on a plate. And then as it goes, you, you start to really feel comfortable. And as soon as you're like, all right, I got this menu change. And it was just, I learned so much in such a short period of time that I just, I owe my whole palate to him. I would say okay. he okay. changed, changed the way I thought about food to say the least. Okay. Any interesting story that you can share from your time there? So El Jefe Grande would never, he's crazy. You know, I mean, we're all crazy. Everybody in this industry is, is nuts. You know, and, and I do this too. I, I modeled my, a lot of my passion and direction and boucherie on him and the way that we change our menus so frequently. And inside of changing the menu so frequently, you know, you kind of get this. And, and as, as a person who's probably very perfectionist based, he would, some of, sometimes the, the thoughts and he would think that he would told me or one of our other coworkers, but something had changed in his head, but he didn't necessarily tell me. Right. <laughs> so all of a sudden I'm doing something and he's like, what the hell's wrong with you? That's not how you do that. You're an idiot. You know? And I'm like, chef, this is what we did yesterday. And he's like, no, 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 you're wrong. And I'm like, yes, chef. And that's what you say is yes, chef. Yes, chef. And, and this is not an ego thing. This is not, this is just, this is respect, you know? And this is one of the things I feel is really lost in the industry now is he yelled at me very rarely, but when he did, I, I took it to heart and I moved on. And the next day we would be the the next day off, we'd be playing volleyball together. You know, like it wasn't, this is not, this is just the way it should be. And so I remember it was after Katrina, I had already moved to new Orleans and I left him and I'd moved to new Orleans and he's from New, new Jersey originally. And he makes collard greens like nobody's business. And he had taught me how to make collards. And I've, as, as since I collards are on my menu, they, they're a staple on my menu at Boucherie. They've never changed. And it's a very standard recipe. But so I'm, I'm back in North Carolina after evacuating and he's, he's having me, I, I'm working for him again because of course, when I'm in town, I come to work for him and come to be just to spend time with him, honestly. And he has me make collards and I'm making them. And he comes up to me and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? You idiot. And I'm like, chef, what do you mean? He's like, that is not, that is not how you make collard greens. Who, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, dude, Jeff, please stop. Like, stop. You told me this is how you taught me. And, and he, he's just starts getting on me. And I'm just like, please, <laughs> dude, please. And I, so and I because, I because it is mine, he has like, it's like, changed. because he changed, it changed. Yeah, I like, think so. Oh, 15 wow. times through probably. You know, I hadn't worked for him in over a year. And so it's probably 15 sure. times through he's changed it. And he's <laughs> seen me do this first iteration of, of the way he makes collard greens. <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm funny. like, dude, please, please, just let me just let me finish them. I promise you taste them, of course. But I would say the most memorable thing that ever occurred with me and him was it was about two months into me working for him. And he pulled me outside into the dining room. We were only open for dinner. He pulls me outside and he goes, Nathaniel, do you realize, and he points to the dining room, he goes, you know, people eat here, right? You understand this, right? This is not just you doing something and then it goes away. This is stuff you feed people. And every time you make something, you bring it to me to taste. And I said, yes, chef. And he goes, it, you make it and you make it exactly how you think I want it to be. And I was like, chef. And he goes, stop. It's time for you to make it how you want it to be and then bring it to me. And it was like the most, probably one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my entire life. Just changed. And I was just like, it's not cook for him, but cook, you know, for you. So yeah, it was yeah, interesting. Very heartwarming. <laughs>
And of course, you know, you're talking about Katrina. So I read somewhere and I don't think it's there anymore, correct? It's that you had the, the food truck. Yes, I for still a few have it, years. Yeah. Oh, you so, still have it. Okay. Yeah. You still have it. How do you pronounce the name of it? Because I don't want to uh, pronounce it like wrongly <laughs> with my French accent. So sure, go for sure. it. The Q crawl. As in, the Q uh, crawl. The crawl. Okay. Yeah. I would have said that. So that's, that's fine. <laughs> the Q crawl. And it was like, like around 2006 after, after Katrina. So how did you start the Q crawl? And then what did you serve at, at that food truck? So it was right after Katrina, you know, we evacuated. So I was looking for jobs. I was staging at a couple of different places. And, and honestly, just it was it was a New Orleans was a shell of itself, of course. And my father lives in South Florida. And he goes, well, Nathaniel, I have a friend who does roofing. Why don't you come down and you can make some cash and then figure out what you want to do? So I go down there and I don't know how this parlays, but I'm about as pale and, and red haired as it gets. <laughs> so dead of summer. I'm jumping up on roofs in, in <laughs> South Florida and, and I'm the guy that's like every 30 minutes jumping down off the roof to reapply sunscreen. And I'm like, this is maybe not. This is right not for me. Yet. <laughs> so I'm talking to my dad and I was kind of outlining this concept that I had had, which was I wanted to start with a barbecue restaurant because I felt like, and this was in 2005, I felt like that was kind of the trend that was going on in the country. And I lo- who doesn't love barbecue and Again, fire because <laughs> I'm a child. And then my concept would be to, to create this restaurant and then kind of be able to set it on, on autopilot and then go open up a fine dining restaurant, which is where my passion is. And my dad was like, well, why don't you just put it in a food truck? Think about it. Yeah. And it was popping big... up everywhere in, this, in the country at that time. So, and I was one know? of the first, actually. I was the first non Latin food truck in, in, in all uh, New of Orleans, Louisiana, but. Oh, all Louisiana. You know, okay. Pretty, pretty much one of the first. I, I know in 2006, I believe I was like USA Today's top 10 mm-hmm. food trucks, like all mm-hmm. of those lists. Because the purple was, I mean, Right before the game, right? <laughs> and it was purple. So he goes, well, if you, if you write a business plan, I'll co-sign on a loan for you. And so I said, okay. And I immediately started working on a business plan and, and that's how it happened. Okay. So barbecue. So what items because i'm sure that you know you had some signature you know dishes in there so the q crawl aptly named because when i I went back to north carolina and i went on a barbecue crawl and so basically i I went to i spent a lot of time in lexington and eastern and i was just looking around for inspiration and so i after that barbecue crawl i think i went to (laughs) i think it was like 16 different restaurants in one day with me and about 10 friends. And we'd go in and we'd order one plate of food and everybody in these really kind of rural places are looking at like, who are these idiots buying one plate of food? And then we all sit around one plate and we taste and we talk. And then we go to another restaurant and we do the exact same thing. And it was a, it was a quite a wild night. And I really started to hone in on my flavors that I was looking for. I still have the same barbecue sauce, the same rub that I put on most of my meats that I created from the food truck days. And then the but boudin bowls as well, too, no? Oh, yeah. Boudin. Boudin, is, that is the same recipe that I made, yeah, about 16, 15, 16 years ago. And so we, I started doing boudin. I, of course, I had collard greens, but I, I did grit fries, which I still serve as well, which I would always kind of describe as vehicles for sauce and basically fried grit sticks and... 12-hour roast beef po'boys, which I still do. My barbecue shrimp po'boy, which is one best shrimp po'boy on po'boy fest multiple times. A lot of these just really kind of maintained my pulled pork, of course. So I'm, I'm uh, guessing uh, if I ask you the different style of a barbecue, you are going to say everything is about Carolina Carolina style, correct? The barbecue versus <laughs> well, Kansas City versus, you know, well, like... You know, only, um, only, if I, only if you didn't want me to lie to you. <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm a... I'm a Big fan of vinegar sauce. Sure. You know, we yeah. do, I do make a, a Coca Cola based red, so almost like Texas or KC style sweet barbecue sauce that we do, I use as well. But for me, it's that vinegar sauce all the way. Okay. So basically, you were able to translate a lot of those concepts into bourree, correct? I'm guessing. Correct. Before we go to Bure, I wanted just to ask you a question is because food truck, there's some people that are might listening that are interested into maybe opening a food truck. So if you are looking back today, at you know your business at that time what would you say like make a food truck business successful you know honestly 
I've and I've had a lot of people suggest ask my advice on this, and I've and I've helped design other people's sure. trucks as well. I don't recommend it. You know, I, I feel like it was a very <laughs> okay. difficult time in my yeah. life. You know, what it comes down to is overhead is very. You know, it has to be very low because there's just not really a good way to sell enough food to to warrant a full staff. And so when I had the opportunity to open up the first restaurant, I jumped on it. And and truly my concept was I'm opening up another outlet so that I can have more employees so I don't have to work quite as much. And so that's something that, you know, I've lost a lot in my life due to the fact that I've worked so much. I would say the first five years of owning my own business, I worked a true hundred hours a week. And Mm -hmm. that's not you do the math and, on and you're talking about the food truck or you're talking about boucherie food truck, food food truck, truck. and then into okay. boucherie but yeah, yeah, the yeah food truck started and you know it's because so i was doing two different things primarily i had i was lucky enough to fall into catering movies and commercials which is great it's a contracted catering so i'm it's a, a known variable on how much i'm getting paid and then i was also the food truck out in front of tipitinas every night so if you think about that specifically i had one other person working with me and they worked for me, not not with me, meaning they came in later in the day and I did the majority of the prepping. But so what would happen is I would, let's say, get to the get to my food truck at noon. I would before that, if I needed to, I would have gone shopping for food and then I would go to. So let's say I leave my house at 10 a.m., get to the, the kitchen, the food truck around noon. I would prep all the way up until about 8 p.m. I would drive to tipitinas to set up to be ready to serve by 10 p.m i'd be done serving by 2 30 in the morning then i would have to drive it back and then i would have to empty it all out and clean it and scrub the whole truck and do all the dishes and then start again so i'd get home at four or five in the morning and would leave my house by 10 11 o'clock at the latest and you know i think a lot of people don't recognize the amount of work yeah, you know, it's one thing if I wanted to go buy pre-made hamburgers or if I wanted to go buy something and then resell it. Like, that's not me, though. I, I'm, I'm when I talk to other people that touch a little bit on the, you know, the business of food truck, they, one of the recommendations that they made is that to be successful is like to focus in like one item and then perfect it and make it the best in, you know, the area of like across all the different food trucks. And then, yeah, you have a little bit of sides, but you don't try to me to have a too difficult and complex menu that you make it as simple as possible and and focus on one because otherwise yeah, that, it's exactly what you are just saying. And that that makes a lot of sense and that that resonates and and honestly you know I mean for me <laughs> also it was kind of a, a learning experience because I'm coming from fine dining and and all of a sudden I'm in, in a food truck and I've got paper plates and I remember the first two or three services. I was wiping the rims of the paper plates and I'm like, Jesus, Nathaniel, what am I doing? Need, yeah. You really need to focus and pay attention to yourself. I sure. So the same context. You know? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. exactly. That's funny. <laughs> so let's talk about, about boucherie. So 2008. So can you talk to us? Of course, we know everyone knows about boucheries nationwide. Nose to tail. One of the first one in-house, you know, butchery program. So. How would you describe what, like in your own words, what boucherie is? Boucherie, the restaurant, I think is, is hopefully it's unique. You know, I, I've, it's something that I've spent a lot of time on and I've always kind of described it as fine dining for the people from the beginning in that I think that we have the ability to make something wonderful without having to charge an arm and a leg for it. And part of the way that we do that is by really dedicating ourselves to the craft in our current climate a lot of times food costs a lot more but a lot of that food that costs a lot more is food that's been somewhat prepared right so whole ingredients tend to cost similar i mean there's still inflation but it's not the same because there's not as much labor involved from other people so for me i like the idea of of taking a whole thing and figuring out what to do with every single bit of it and try not to have any waste and really focus in on technique you know i think technique is i so now currently i change my menu every other month as opposed to every month which i did for a while and part of that is because i wanted to have that sweet spot extended kind of like what i was talking about with at foursquare but just really intentional you know do work 
do right, I really try to spend a lot of time focusing on doing the right thing and, and getting back to the basics. I'm not trying to recreate something. I'm just trying to do it properly. And I think things that are done properly tend to shine a lot more than people. What you are the most proud of when you look at Bushri? Food-wise? Mm-hmm. Consistency. Honestly, I th- I'm most proud of the fact that, that I think you go to the restaurant and, and for the most part, we're going to have, you know, I've standardized all of my recipes to the grams. You know, this is something that, that I feel is so crucial in a restaurant and the success of a restaurant is consistency. So what I'm most proud about, I think, is that regardless of the day, the food should be the same. You know, you open Blu-ray after in like 2014, but something happened in between in your life that was kind of a dramatic event. And if you want to talk a little bit about this, and and I'm curious about because I'm sure you have told this story like many, many times, but how that had impacted your life and whether you have what have changed, let's say, in your way of approaching life since you know 2011 for you as well. You know? Yes, yeah, so yeah. I was I was shot three times in one event, one circumstance, and somebody. Best way I can describe it is I think somebody tried to kill me. I feel like. What I have taken from that is, first of all, I don't want to die. <laughs> so I, I really feel like my my strength of will has has proven me as a human. I, you know, I, I of course can never forget that evening and what my overall. I remember, you know, I'm in my vehicle and the guy shoots me here in my chest and I grab for the gun. And I try to pull it away and he shoots me again and I still holding on and he shoots me a third time. And then I just roar. And I remember just like, ah, you know, I am not gonna, this is not going to put me down. And I, he took off <laughs> because I screamed so well. He took off and I remember opening the door and standing up. And I remember when I stood up, I said, you know, I couldn't go very far. So I stood up and I'm like, Ooh, and I fall back into my car and I just put my hand on the horn And I just, you know, I, it, this is, these are not things that I think you can prepare yourself for. And, and that was my reaction. And, and I feel like since then I've, I have felt this, this strong sense of survival. How did it affect my outlook? You know, honestly, I think it, if anything, it, it forced or, or reminded me what I'm doing here. And for me, that is, I want a family. I wanted a family. I have a family now. I have two children and that's really focused my priorities, I guess, which at the time it basically told me to stop working so much and really try. But you still open Bure after that. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I didn't say I was a smart man. Yeah. I mean, you know, the passion is still there, of course. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That of course. Something that's really hard to squash. And to, to suffocate completely. But you are doing fine, correct? Health-wise? Yeah, very lucky. Okay. Very lucky. Okay, good. Uh, very, very little issues, if at all. The other kind of big thing that has took a while, it took about five years, but it has really changed a lot of my focus is when I was in the hospital, I remember my very first meal and I had been in the hospital for two weeks. And the very first meal that I was served was kind of your local D&D sausage, which is like a pretty low quality sausage. Beans and rice was my first meal. And I remember thinking, man, I've got abdominal trauma. And the first meal you serve me is beans, <laughs> rice, beans. And, like bad sausage, like greasy sausage. Come on. <laughs> I was just livid. And so for a very long time, I, I was really trying to focus on how to change the, the healthcare industry. And then I, I, I think I stepped out and then refocused again and realized that what I need to be doing is, is working on feeding children. And so for about almost six years now, I guess I've, been feeding kids in schools and in addition to everything else I do. And in a weird way, this is me being able to work less because, you know, we school lunch stuff takes place in the mornings when my daughter's in school and weekends and holidays off. So okay. the goal is to... So you reshuffle your, your mm-hmm. schedule, in fact, yeah. around that. And so I'm, t- talk still- to us a little bit about the, the Bouchery Feed, which is the program Feeds, yes. So do work, do right is, is very strong and as my mantra. And, you know, we really focus on trying to hide nutritional value 
So I, I, my big thing that I do is I really try to hide vegetables. At first, <laughs> I wanted to ask you that. So how do you how do you hide vegetables? You know, I, we know as parents that this is always the most difficult things to do is to make it, kids, your know, children is. eat eat so, veggies. So you have some yeah. tricks. <laughs> yes, indeed. So you know, my my daughter was actually attending one of the schools, and I think I was providing food in a way that uh, that adults who wanted to be healthy were would would want to eat, and that was kind of my first entrance into school lunches and then i i my daughter stopped eating <laughs> and i'm like oh i need to refocus this and i need to understand what's valuable and what's important and then i reminded myself that when i was in high school for instance i would get headaches all the time if i wasn't constantly eating like i'm just constantly hungry and so we really need to not stray or, or be afraid of of carbohydrates we need to make concessions inside of what we're doing and so for me For instance, we make a macaroni and cheese and our macaroni and cheese is with white elbow pasta because honestly, quinoa and chickpea pastas, yeah, they're better for you. But man, nobody wants to eat that, honestly. So what we do is we take this and we instead of making a, a bechamel for my cheese sauce where I would make a blonde roux and then add milk and dairy, what we do is we, wrote, we puree vegetables. So I will cook For in, for the cheese sauces, for instance, I'll take yellow vegetables, orange vegetables, so so squash, sweet potatoes, carrots, celery, onions, and we kind of just puree all of that, cook it until it's very soft, and then puree all of that, and that's my natural thickener. So then to that, I add cream, and then I I mount in cheese to make it a cheese sauce, but there's no flour in it. You know, it's it's thickened by the vegetable matter, by the fiber of vegetables. And so you really, you cannot tell. And it's just sweet. You know, vegetables are awesome. They tend to be pretty full of sugar too, or there's sugar content in, in those, especially not the green vegetables. And you just can't see them. And, you know, cauliflower is another good one that we get to hide a lot. But but squash, yellow squash, butternut squash, acorn squash, all these really, really nutritional vegetables that, that people, that, that they have a very mild flavor as it is. So it's, it's, it's nothing to change. If you manipulate the texture, you're really easily able to hide them. Tell me a little bit here, because, you know, you, you're passionate about fine dining. You did as well, you know, kind of the fast casual and then leverage like the, the dishes from your cakewalk, you know, food truck into a bourree. Are there any principle from those two restaurants that you were able to apply in, in the school program? Because I'm guessing as well that, and not only guessing, but I heard from you telling me when we met not too long ago, that, you know, the the average cost, you know, that you have to play with is not a lot. So so how, yeah. how do you do that? Everything I've done helps to get to where I am, I would say. And, and certainly we apply these principles. For instance, primarily, you know, we, we try to focus on getting in whole ingredients and utilizing the whole thing. So Cauliflower is a great example where if we have roasted cauliflower for the vegetable that day, the excess stem, like the, the root of the, the root of the cauliflower, that is a great matter. It's a great amount of fiber. There's great nutritional value in that as well. It just needs to be used. So we, we just tried very hard to not throw things away and to, to see what we can do with it. And, you know, sometimes what that means is I sit on it and I look at it. You know, I'm not saying I sit on it till it goes bad. More so is like I, I say, I try to look at something and say to myself, well, what can I do to utilize this? And that takes thought, you know, it takes intention. And I think that that is a very good common thread in what I do in all of my endeavors is, is intentionality. If you have an intention to get something done, you're going to figure it out, hopefully, or most of us will hopefully be able to figure out, figure it out. And you have to look at it in a different way. It's, you know, they, that whole think outside of the box. It's real. That's a, that, that is an important way to look at things. You just have to be able to remove yourself enough to say to myself, what do I want and how am I going to help myself to get that? And with Bure, which is more of our fast casual, with Bushri, which is more of our fine dining, with school lunch, which is <laughs> so different in so many ways from sure. both of those. Outlets. How many school lunch do you serve a day? Right, right now we're doing about 550. Yeah, the scale uh, is different as well, huh? <laughs> massively so, different, yeah. massively different. And, you know, and, and I think one of the things and, and one of my one of my big ways that I've gotten these schools is I'll go in and I'll say, hey, you guys are being serviced by the Piccadilly Cafe. Here's the deal. I will do the same. I will match their prices. Mm -hmm. and I won't open up cans, you know, and that's, a you know, with my reputation and with, with sure. 
who and what. Yeah, because for I the do. school program, they have the chef behind like boucherie and bourree, you it's know, a, so that's, that's, you know, that's a great. A, it's a good relationship, I should say. And I stand by what I do. You know, we, we, it's a learning curve every day. I have, I have a new school this year, Stuart Hall, and it's an all boys school. And honestly, it's completely different. <laughs> and, you know, I, it's it just the way that children eat and different ages. And, and, and it's fascinating to me. I really, I love, I love the study of it because, you know, what we try to do is, is we're always trying to improve and trying to better ourselves, hopefully. And these challenges keep you on your toes. And, you know? and at the same time, this is, you know, not only giving quality food, but this is very important because I'm guessing for some of those kids, this is maybe the only meal that they have you know, access correct to. So, yes. And so that's, that is kind of a little bit deeper into what Boucherie Feeds is, is, you know, the, the private schools that I do are, seem like a no brainer for lots of reasons. You know, it's maybe some a wealthier clientele and their children. So they're probably exposed to more, but you might be surprised. I, I think I'm forever surprised because I feel like sometimes the, the wealthier children tend to be a little bit more spoiled. So then they get to not be they're not forced out of their comfort zone as much, which is interesting because I'll get, I'll have sometimes more complaints from some of these, these families than I would from the public schools that I do. And in the public schools that, that the purpose of the private schools for me, well, first of all, it is good business, but the, it's to help offset the, the federally funded stuff that I do. And that is a much different game, you know, and, and, and this is where then, this is where I feel so much strongly, so much more strongly about it because these are children that I am feeding that truly are, you know, the statistics, especially in, in Orleans Parish, are they're heartbreaking. You know, the kids that they don't get to eat, man. And, and, and so for us to be able to provide food, hopefully very nutritious food that that is made with intention, that intentionality. I just can only imagine that this is this is this is what I can do from my profession to make a difference. Very cool. And I'm guessing that's on the, on your website on Bure. If people, uh, people sure from uh, New, New Orleans wants to support, they can contribute, correct? And give a donation. Yes. And, and what we're, what we have inside of that is just understanding the, the cost and the, the federally regulated costs that are reimbursable are, are really offensively low. And, you know, it, it's no wonder. It's no wonder that there's a cycle. You know, this is a cycle that we have to beat. And especially in a wonderful city like New Orleans, that where we're known for food, you would think we wouldn't be sabotaging ourselves. And I feel like we really are. And so, again, intentionality, you know, it does somehow manage to fit in my life better because of me having a young family and wanting to be able to spend more time at home. And this is the legacy I want to leave. You know, I want to be remembered for not just making great food, because hopefully that is what Boucherie will maintain. And it is what Boucherie will maintain. But you know, I want to be able to give back. I want to be able to be a part of the solution. And and for me, with my specific skill set, that is cooking, you know, I'm feeding, nourishing. So if you look back in time and to the beginning of a career, and if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? <laughs> I'm going to go back to what I always say. Do work, do right. Keep your head down, dummy. <laughs> Just keep focusing on what you love. Would have you done something differently looking back or? No, no. I'm pretty, I'm pretty dogged. <laughs> I'm pretty, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm very intentional in, in a lot of things that I do. My wife always says that I don't, I don't accidentally say things, say stupid things. I, I intend it, which sometimes means that it hurts more <laughs> because I do. I Ouch. think about what I say. Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I think about what I say before I say it. <laughs> So I ask uh, always the same question to uh, all my guests. I want to pick uh, your brain about cooking. So what would you suggest for a home cook like myself to prepare and looking at, you know, bourree? I thought that maybe a guideline for a recipe for wings with a sauce being Nathaniel style. So what, what unique spin would you suggest to make? You know, I would say the best example is our buffalo sauce. And again, you know, what I've talked about is describing to you is, is technique, right? And technique and, and utilizing the whole ingredient. So what we do for our buffalo sauce is, of course, we have a variety of, and I'm happy to share the recipe with you. But we take the, we take citrus, specifically lemons, limes, and oranges, 
and we zest them. And then we, we cut the, the skin off in the pith. And then instead of using, and in, in you know, you to supreme a citrus is you, you cut the skin and the pith off and then you go in between the membranes. So what we do is I take the skin and pith removed round citrus, cut it into quarters, remove the seeds, and then I puree the whole thing. So again, you get a great viscosity, you get a great thickness, you get a, a deeper flavor because you're really utilizing the whole ingredient, a lot less waste. And, and I think you'll find that some of the, the oils especially the oils from the skin, but some of the, the flavor, I want to say phenols for some reason, they really come out in a way that you wouldn't get from just squeezing some citrus. And also texture, you know, the thickness of our sauce means that it sticks to the wing better. You know, one of the things... So what do you put, what do you blend with those citrus after? So lemon, lime, orange, we use the variety of hot sauces. I, I really feel like you can't have a buffalo sauce without Frank's Red Hot. I also add sriracha and sambal. Instead of using... Whirl, which is that traditional like fake butter crap, we do emulsify canola oil into it, and that's pretty much it. There's a few other things. Like I said, I'm happy to share them with you, but really, it's about it's about having that that great spice and that citrus zing, that like freshness. And they are baked or they are fried. Your we take all of our wings and we smoke them first. My concept with smoke is, of course, I love smoke, but also what you do is you you render them slowly. So when you get you end up getting to render off a lot of the excess fat. And then we deep fry them to order and then toss them in the sauce. So they get really, really, the smokiness is just a flavor that's just lovely. But it also may, means that the pickup time is a lot faster, but it also crisps so much better because, you you know, it's like the double cook. Very cool. So smoke, then fry, then toss. Smoke and fry. Very good. What kind of wood do you use for smoking? We smoke with whole wood only. So I use a okay. blend of, of hickory, oak, and pecan. And so okay. literally every day that we start our smoker, we're out there chopping down kindling. And I don't believe in accelerants. I have a little torch and I just do, you know, wow. fanning. Okay. Keeping it simple. I, I feel like when you do things again properly, like when you do the right technique, it's, it's really hard to overdo it. So you can't, there's no such thing as an overly smoky wing if you're not using wood chips, if you're not using fake smoke you know what i mean it's 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 natural it's a natural method of cooking right good so i'm going to finish with the rapid fire questions because I, i hear the little voice of your son in the background <laughs> that's, <supposed to> be <laughs> <lovely>. <laughs> no, that's fine that's fine so you and i are going on a tasting tour in new orleans so what are the five spots that you're going to take me to outside of obviously boucherie and, and, and <laughs> of course uh, oh my gosh Boucherie and brewery. Yeah, this, yes. I would say, you know, New Orleans is just really well known for a lot of heavy, heavy foods. I'm a big fan of our, of our ethnic foods more. So we would start at Dong the Vietnamese Bakery out in New Orleans East. It's a little far away, but man, is it awesome. And they have the, you know, the, I use their bread for my po' boys, but they make some of the best pho, their ka, like all of their dishes are fabulous so we would definitely go to a place like that to, to dong Fung. i'd probably take you to the west bank as well to get dim sum tan din is fabulous as well we would have to go to a seafood place so i would probably go to harbor seafood or, or the galley both of them are really good and, and you know fresh boiled awesome it's interesting to me i'm not as huge a fan of our oysters as we are as i am with the shrimp our shrimp in in, in orleans is In Louisiana, the Gulf shrimp are just some of the best in the world. So certainly I would go there. We would have to get a po' boy as well. That is a hard one. And I go back and forth on this. And I don't mean to say this lightly, but there is actually a little local grocery near me and near the restaurants. It's Adam Street Grocery. And they uh -huh. have one of the best shrimp po' boys that, that I've ever ah. had. Just okay. absolutely adore. Then, man, you know, it's not fair, last one. Say, yeah. not fair of me to say a bunch of my friends' restaurants, but that's usually <laughs> what I would do. I would probably, you know, I would probably say we've had, well, I would probably end up at a sushi bar. <laughs> so okay. right now my favorite sushi bar is Daiwa. It's, it's actually on veterans and it's a great sushi. Just great Okay. Sushi. Very good. For me, I'm, I'm all about seafood. What's your favorite guilty pleasure food? Uh, French fries. <laughs> I eat a lot of fries. I'm a okay. <laughs> with, any, with anything on top or? I'm open, but I'm a, I'm a purist. I like salt and okay. pepper. Salt and pepper. Okay. Potatoes. Potatoes. Three cookbooks that inspired you the most in your career? 
Number one would be Morimoto. He's got a cookbook that, man, you know, he's brilliant in the way that he looks at things. And this is what I kind of talk about with, with, you know, sometimes you just need to spend some time on some things. This, in this cookbook, he has a, he serves a scallop cloud, I believe he calls it. And it's literally what he's doing is he's making a consomme and then the, the raft on top, he's made with basically egg whites and, and pureed scallop. And then he serves it, you know, and, well, what have you ever heard of a consomme where you're serving? That's just to me quite revolutionary. That one, really big. The modernist cookbooks, I have the bread ones and also yep. the, the, the cuisine ones. Sure. I think they're outrageous. Yeah. You don't have the pizza then, one yet. <laughs> and then maybe a Harold McGee, you know, okay. on food and cooking. Really, yep. Sure. Again, Techniques. giving you yep. the opportunity to, to think outside of, outside of your hell, your head and what traditionally mm-hmm. people would say. Okay. Biggest pet peeves in the kitchen. Disorganization and dirtiness. Wipe your board. Wipe your board. Why are you so lazy? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The last one. So beside the classics, what condiments, spices, sauces, dressing do you like to have on hand at home? I, at home, I have a a hot sauce shelf, but I'm really into dried Thai chili as a great way, like ground Thai chili is a great way to impart spice. Big fan of that. And frozen lemongrass. Frozen lemongrass, it's it's a chopped product. So it's all na- it's all purely lemongrass. But I, I don't know if... For me, lemongrass is one of those flavors that you just... You can't, I can't get enough of. And one of the things that's very difficult by getting a stalk of lemongrass is your yield is very small. And it's also kind of a pain in the butt. This prepared stuff, I get it from an Asian market. And I mean, you just kind of... You keep it frozen, you scrape a bunch of it off, and it's just that's cool. lovely. Because I've seen on in uh, Bure on the sauce that you had one that was a uh, kimchi and lemongrass for the for the wings, yeah. correct? Yeah, use a lot of that. So and I have a lemongrass uh, pork sandwich as well that I have. Okay, before. very cool, Chef. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. you know that you agreed to be a guest on the on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening today. If you want to learn more about what Chef Nathaniel Simet does at Boucherie, at Bure, or for the school program with Boucherie Feed, go to the website boucherie-nola.com or burenola.com. And Bure, you spell it with double R and double E. Don't forget to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and on social media at Flavors Unknown. Next week is going to be a special episode because it's going to be aired on November 8th. And I will probably focus that episode on the behind the scene, on writing the book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, because the launch date is on November 8th. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you've enjoyed this episode, give us a follow on Instagram at flavorsunknown and visit us at flavorsunknown.com. Don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts.